welcome or welcome back to Morning Cup of Controversy. I'm Ryan, your host, and today I'm going to be talking a little bit about the prison system and rehabilitation, kind of what that looks like right now and what it could potentially look like in the future. And yeah, so let's go ahead and get into the question of the week. This week's question of the week is actually brought to us by my best friend Sharon. I had her last second, at the very last second, right before I recorded this, I had her pick a question for me, and she actually went a little deeper than I was expecting. She said, if you only had one week left to live, what would you do? This question took my mind to quite a few places, obviously, as I'm sure that question would for a lot of overthinkers. The first thing that I thought was, if I can get creative with it, and it could be anything in the world that I wanted to do with no limitations, no nothing. I would want to go see like some of the most beautiful places in the world. I don't know why, like, I don't know. And like now I'm starting to overthink it even more. And I'm like, if you only had one week to live, it wouldn't matter what you did because you're about to die. I don't know. Maybe like if you were really worried about reincarnating and (laughs) what was gonna happen to you in your next life, maybe you would um, right some of your wrongs. real quick you know you only have a week to do it so might as well get it done (laughs) so let me know underneath this episode if you're listening on spotify what you would do if you only had one week left to live just a quick reminder for everybody um, on every episode of morning cup of controversy on spotify if you scroll beneath the episode there is a q a section and sometimes there's even a poll Last week there was a poll because the question of the week happened to be a poll that I was scrolling through Reddit and found. So go check that out every week and let me know what you think. Maybe I'll share your comment um, as a pinned comment. Moving into the topic of the week, like I said at the beginning, it's going to be about prison system, the prison system, and rehabilitation. The first thing I wanted to start off with was reading this quote that I recently heard It says, our practices of punishment are too interconnected with our goal of rehabilitation. And this was in a TED talk with Brandon W. Matthews about rehabilitation in the prison system. And his point basically was that we're too focused on putting people in prison and letting them know that this is a punishment for you. You did something wrong. You're here to be punished rather than you did something wrong, let's help you find why you did that, let's fix it, let's see if you can, you know, become a better person, let's put you back into society, let's help you get into a better position for yourself, you know, like, that's what we should be doing, and that's not what we are doing, we're too focused on punishment, punishment, punishment. So, with that being said, let's move into some of the notes that I've taken. So, some basic issues with the system that I wanted to talk about. Um, First of all, I just thought that this was going to be a really important conversation to have in general, Um, just because there's so much more, like I just said, that the system could be doing for these people, for any inmate. You know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of different things that I'm going to talk about. Mostly one thing, but you know, we'll get to it. One of the big reasons why I have such a big issue with this is because I have family members that have dealt with addiction. I've lost... Um, some aunts, some uncles, some great-grandparents, all kinds of stuff to addiction. 
um, whether that be drugs or alcohol, you know, addictive personalities run in my family, as my grandma always tells me. But it is a disease and it is something that is genetic. So I feel like it should be treated as such. And we treat people with proven mental health issues by putting them in, uh, you know, psych wards instead of putting them in prison. So why wouldn't you put somebody who has a substance abuse disorder in rehab instead of prison? It just doesn't make any sense. I don't really think this is the definition. I think it's just kind of explaining how the justice system works. Um, but basically, a case begins with law enforcement officials who investigate a crime and gather evidence to identify and use against the presumed perpetrator. Just with that being said alone, there's already just some issues that you could pick and pull from it if you use examples that we've seen in the past. You know, bias and racism exist extremely heavily in our government, unfortunately, and a lot of other things too. So with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and talk about some of the issues that there really is right now with the with our system. So I'm going to read this quite long quote. The U.S. has seen a steady decline in the federal and state prison populations over the last 11 years, with 2019 populations uh, of about 1.4 million men and women incarcerated year-end, hitting its lowest since 1995. The COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 criminal justice system reforms have urged a continued focus on reducing prison populations and many states are permitting early release of nonviolent offenders and even closing prisons. Thus, we are likely to see a dramatic re reduction in the prison population when the data were tabulated for 2022 or for 2020. So this data is two years old. It's from 2020 or 2021 at the very beginning. And even with that being said, there's still so many people in prison. Just the pure amount of people in prison is wild. Um, and one other thing that I wanted to talk about with that was it's unfortunate that something like COVID-19 has to happen before they start permitting early release for nonviolent offenders and even closing prisons. I wanted to talk about a couple stats that we have um, describing what kind of people we have in prison percentage-wise, what's going on. So. 45.2% of inmates are incarcerated for drug offenses, 21.4% of inmates for weapons, explosives, or arson, 11.6% for sex offenses, and then burglary, larceny, and property offenses is 4.9%, immigration is 4.8%, homicide, aggravated assault, and kidnapping offenses 3.2%. And with percentages under or right around 2%, we have extortion, fraud, bribery, robbery, bank and insurance, counterfeit, and embezzlement. With inmates, it needs to be about getting them ready to basically re-enter a society that is already set up for them to fail. Rehabilitation is another thing that I wanted to talk about in this episode, and California literally rebranded their corrections division and named it the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. So we know that at least California state prisons are working in at least some type of way. I mean, you can change the name. It says that they've rebranded and, you know, kind of changed everything that they do, but we'll see it when it happens. 
Many other countries have included rehabilitation in their Bill of Rights, and this is another episode that I'll get into at some point when we talk about different countries and the differences in rights between America and Norway and all that kind of stuff. The only reason, really, that the U.S. hasn't done the same is because they basically like to take the studies that places like Norway or the, the places that have rehabilitation included in their Bill of Rights, and they take every little person that has gone through those programs or any little failure in the system, any holes in the system, and they try to say, well, you know, oh, it doesn't work, so why would we do that here, you know? But do you not want your citizens to become the best versions of themselves? Like, come on, we're all trying to manifest the best lives. You gotta give us something. 83% of the prison's population is addicted to some kind of substance or was incarcerated for something involving drugs or drug use. That's why a couple minutes ago I was saying that it's really a huge issue that even even just even when only 45.2% of people locked up are there for drug offenses, 83% of all of those people are most likely addicted to drugs. That's the issue and then another thing with, that comes along with that is that inmates with opioid use disorder are at a higher risk for overdose following release from incarceration and especially when they're in a prison that doesn't offer any type of rehabilitation. That just makes things worse and worse and worse. So if this were going to happen, you know, if we were going to implement things that could help in this situation, that would include comprehensive care which that would be medication, behavior therapy, job and housing opportunities like I mentioned earlier. And I'll get into a couple other specifics in just a second. But a survey of prison medical directors suggested that most are not aware of the benefits of using medication with treatment. And when treatment is offered, it usually consists of only behavior counseling and or detox without follow-up treatment. And that's one of the biggest issues with that detoxing in general is that you need some type of therapy to go along with that because detoxing has such a it takes such a toll on your body no matter if you're in prison detoxing or if you're at home detoxing it's going to take a toll on your body i don't know if y'all saw euphoria but those detoxes are real you know like that's really how it is and can you imagine having to go through that in prison and then also not having anybody to talk to you about it that understands what you're going through and can help you talk yourself through it and get through those moments without feeling like you need to take your own life. It's a messed up system. It's a very messed up system because these people don't have resources. They have to they have to use anything and everything they can and at the end of the day a lot of them are just going to turn back to drugs because it's easier than having to go through a detox practically alone. Moving forward, like I said, I was about to talk about some of the effective treatments of substance abuse disorder and what that would require from a prison. So behavioral therapy, like I talked about just a second ago, um, most of, mostly would involve cognitive behavioral therapy. And if you've never heard of that, it's basically to help manage triggers and stress. Um, I, when it was explained to me, it was explained like basically thought-based therapy. And if you think one way, you're going to feel one way, and you're going to act one way. So cognitive behavioral therapy is teaching yourself to talk to yourself differently. That way you'll feel differently, and you'll act differently. Um, and it's 
something that you have to work on because it's not easy to change your inner dialogue but that's something that is necessary when you're dealing with substance abuse disorder. Another thing is medications, like I said, to detox, to make the detox easier and keep the user off drugs that are running through the system. A lot of the inmates are extremely inclined to just turn back to using drugs because it's easier than detoxing. And using the medications that help with the detox don't make the addiction worse. They just help with the detox. It's not like they're supposed to be on the medications for the rest of their lives because that would probably just create another addiction for that person. Um, wraparound services after release from the justice system. Um, in a wraparound service, if you don't know what this is, it basically includes housing and employment assistance. You'll have somebody helping you each step of the way, helping you find some place to live, helping you find some places that can accept um, employment from you, that will accept your resume, and another thing is o overdose education and distribution of opioid reversal medication naloxone while in justice diversion treatment programs and after release. Teaching these inmates and not only the inmates but also the people working with them, the CEOs and the the prison guards and everyone, teaching them what an overdose looks like, how you can help when it's happening, and making sure that everybody on the facility has a place to run and grab the life-saving medication that this person needs, the opioid reversal medication. That would make a huge difference because it's not readily available to a lot of people in these prisons. And, you know, there's obviously going to be quite a cost to all of that, but there's studies proving that it will save money in the long run. There was a study done in California that showed an engagement in treatment was associated with lower costs in crime in the six months following treatment. So that's a plus. Um, but something, I literally have this highlighted on my, on my notes in front of me. It, like, it's just, it's, it blew my mind. A report from the National Drug Intelligence Center estimated that the cost to society for drug use was $193 billion in 2007, a substantial portion of which, $113 billion, was associated with drug-related crime, including criminal justice system costs and costs borne by victims of crimes. That same report showed that the cost of treating drug use, including health costs, hospitalization, and government specialty treatment, was estimated to be $14.6 billion, a fraction of these overall societal costs. It is estimated that the cost to society has increased significantly, significantly since the 2007 report, given the growing costs of prescription drug misuse. So I really just thought that was super important to share because drug use is so, so widespread in America that it was just, that was so crazy to me. $193 billion. And to fix it, it would only cost around $14.6 billion. I just, oh my gosh, it was so crazy to me. And it's still like, every time I read it, I'm like, whoa how. <laughs> the next thing I wanted to talk about was some factors behind drug use. 
Um, so obviously there's a lot of things, there's a lot of reasons why people use drugs. Or maybe there's a lot of reasons why people don't use drugs. Or maybe there's not a, or a lot of reasons why people use drugs, you know? Everybody's different. Everybody has different things that happen to them in life and different places that they end up in life. And drugs are introduced to a lot of different people in a lot of different times of their life. So let's just say there's a lot of reasons why people use drugs. But these are some of the biggest reasons why people end up having substance abuse disorder. So obviously, like I mentioned earlier, it is genetic. So family history of addiction um, is going to give you obviously a genetic predisposition to having an addictive personality, um, to having to having a substance abuse disorder because substance is something that can easily give you those fixes that you're looking for when you have an addiction disorder. Another thing could be a lack of family involvement or little guidance in your life. Um, your family could be heavily involved, but you know maybe they just didn't guide you in the right path. Maybe they weren't involved in, at all and you just got mixed up with the wrong people. Like I said earlier, there's a lot of different reasons. Um, different mental health disorders. Some people get diagnosed with certain things and they start taking medication um, that they start becoming dependent on and that leads to other medications. Um, something else can be early use of a drug. Peer pressure, trauma can obviously do some crazy things to you. Um, an in inability to cope with things going on in your life. Stress, just general stress. A lot of reasons why people end up doing drugs or why people get addicted to drugs. In prison, however, people are bored, miserable, and isolated often self-medicating for mental and physical health needs that go usually go unmet. And that was from Leo Filetsky, a law professor at Northeastern University who studies intersection of public health and law enforcement. This was another fact that just blew my mind. Um, the amount of deaths from overdose in prisons from 20, from 2001 up to 2018 had skyrocketed 611%. Just let that number sit with you for a second. This data did not include 2019, 2020, or 2021, or 2022, but just 17 years alone, 611%. This is mostly due to the fact that drugs going through prisons are dangerous. You never know where it's been or where it really came from. And on top of that, most of the people in prison do drugs when they're alone and they may be reluctant to call for help when they need it. And even if they do seek medical help, it's normally not good enough. So that right there is another reason why I think they should distribute that life-saving or, you know, that life-saving medication that I mentioned earlier, um, the opioid reversal, because a lot of people are overdosing in prison and there's no one to do anything about it because it's too late by the time they find them. A couple other things I wanted to talk about before we wrap it up. One thing was reducing recidivism. So basically all these things that I'm about to read is from an article from the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So if you don't know how that kind of works, the Federal, Federal Bureau of Prisons is in charge of federal prisons, which is different than the state. I could not find out 100% sure 
if the BOP doing what they're saying they're doing has any effect on state prisons because there are so many more state prisons than federal prisons it's wild and then we'll talk about that in just a second but I tried to find some information on it and I just couldn't find very much on that specific topic topic um, basically I was curious to know if like I said the, the federal or state prisons are separate I mean I know they're separate but does the federal BOP even like get a say on what the prisons like what the state prisons do or anything but if any of you guys know please feel free to reach out to me and let me know because I would love to be educated on that because th there's a lot of things that the BOP is talking about doing that I'm about to tell you that would be so beneficial and if they were just implemented in more prisons than just federal prisons then it would be even more beneficial so let me go ahead and read this list for y'all so first of all, identifying an inmate's individual on each individual inmate's needs before they re-enter the prison system um, and using their history based on criminal past, their family history, substance use history, and education levels, all different kinds of stuff, you know, basically putting together a specific plan for, for each inmate. That way they don't feel like they're just a herd and they're just one of the they're just a number, you know, they're just another inmate. Something else that has been proven to be very beneficial is building a type of school district within the prison system. Like I said, research shows that inmates who participate in correctional education programs have 43% lower odds of returning to prison than those who do not. So every dollar spent on prison education programs saves four or five dollars on a reincarceration. And that right there should scream, like, do this, do this, let's... It's, it's like, I don't understand how the prisons are doing this to make money when you could literally save money by doing things the other way around and having more people in society working and doing what you really want people to be doing, which is working till they die, but that's not for me to talk about right now. <laughs> Another thing the BOP mentioned in this article was launching a tablet-based pilot program for inmate education. So the BOP wants to launch a pilot program to determine the feasibility of a blended education model that combines classroom in instruction with online education. And this would be provided through little tablets that are customized for a prison environment. Uh, so this could be beneficial. I personally wouldn't see a huge reason why this would be necessary to bring technology um, into the prisons I just feel like that would be a lot uh, that would cost a lot more money I'm not too sure what that one would do but it's an interesting idea supporting the second chance pill pilot program this program would give the opportunity to inmates to go to post-secondary schools on scholarships to further their education in order to get a career or support their families so basically getting them some type of career um, in the in in a more professional field rather than just working for Amazon after they get out of prison you know this they're saying hey you know we'll get you to school so that you can learn some type of secondary you know like a trade basically another thing would be encouraging inmates to develop marketable job skills it's very similar to the last thing that I just mentioned developing standardized um, evidence-based programs to reduce recidivism. This would be implementing programs like cognitive behavioral therapy, attempting 
to staff more social workers, psychologists, and educators on site and improving case management. So this just kind of wraps up a little bit of everything. Um, like it said, developing standardized evidence-based programs. It's very similar to the first jot that I mentioned. Prioritizing mental health treatment for inmates. Very similar to what I mentioned with the drug issue, the substance abuse issue. Ensuring that inmates receive proper substance abuse treatment. Helping inmates maintain family ties while in prison. A lot of um, a lot of inmates don't have the capability of having their family members' phone numbers or um, being able to even stay in contact with them because it's just not easy. Some families don't really have the money to keep um, helping this person. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. If you've ever been in prison or known somebody that was in prison, it's definitely it's definitely a struggle. But being able to have help from the government that would help you to see your loved one or talk to your loved one, communicate with them and let them know that you're still there and you're still fighting for them and doing what you can for them, then that would that I feel like that would just change your whole perspective on being in prison you know I, I obviously can't speak I've never been in prison but I do know people who've been in prison and I have had struggles communicating with somebody in prison a family member that that was pretty tough because it wasn't just about when they could communicate with me it was also about whether or not we had the money to be able to communicate with them so it was definitely a, a weird and tough situation so I can definitely speak for that one when I say that would be a very helpful one for families. Enhancing programs for female inmates as well as uh, gender responsive programs. Reducing the use of solitary confinement and other restrictive housing. Uh, I can only imagine that this is harmful for people's mental health and I want to do a different episode talking about things like that. Reforming and strengthening federal halfway houses. These are, like I said earlier, the uh, the housing assistance. Uh, it's a place for you to stay when you get out, when you need some help. The article actually mentioned that, unfortunately, a lot of them are so run down that people end up getting worse there. So reforming and strengthening would definitely need to be done if this is something that we're going to start encouraging more of. Helping inmates acquire government-issued IDs upon release because a lot of the inmates can't, you can't really get a job without having an ID. That would definitely be helpful. Equipping inmates with information and resources as they re- return to the community. And this could be a number of things. It could be, like I said, where, like, like we mentioned, where to get a job, where to get housing, helping keep you up to date on what's going on in the community and all that kind of stuff. So. All of that obviously sounds very hopeful, and if it actually takes effect all over the U.S., then maybe we'll see some real change. That would be very, very, very nice to see. But like I said earlier, I'm not 100% sure if that's something that will be taking effect widespread because about 83% of the prisons in the country are owned and operated by the state that they are in. There are only 122 federal prisons in the United States compared to 1,719 state prisons. Now get this. Okay, 
combined they hold 1.5 million inmates and 1.3 million of those are state inmates so only 200,000 of them about 200,000 of them are federal inmates so all of that reform that we just talked about as far as I'm concerned is only being applied to about 200,000 inmates compared to the 1.3 million that are still in another prison it's just a little crazy to me so I hope that the BOP has influence over what the state prisons do because it did say that they were closing some prisons and stuff the state prisons are more likely to have less violent offenders and shorter sentences and in spite of that they often outsource people to run prisons because of the workload which is ridiculous um, that is something that I think was being fixed during COVID because they were closing down prisons that uh, basically didn't they weren't being run directly by the state they were closing down a lot of the ones that were outsourced or taking over the ones that were outsourced so that might not be valid anymore also don't quote me on that but still for a long time that's what was going on if it's not anymore um, and the overcrowding just becomes too much to handle on their own this can obviously lead to a very dangerous environment being so understaffed so that's about all I wanted to talk about with that with the rehabilitation in the prison system I do want to take bits and pieces of that and kind of put into a, a more wide perspective in different episodes so those are things that I'll eventually touch on a little bit more pretty much all of this is going to get touched on a little bit more in multiple episodes because there's a lot of different stuff I, I want to talk about there's a lot of different people that want to speak um, on my podcast and say what's happened to them or their experience what happened when they got arrested or things like that so I want to talk about a lot of those situations and I'm definitely going to get to that in the very near future but right now I want to bring on my best friend Sharon and ask her what she thinks about these two specific cases Okay, I have my friend Sharon here with me now. Sharon, say hello. Hey, what's up? So, I'm going to go ahead and read her a little bit what I wrote along with the question and see what she thinks. Feel free to let me know what you think as well. So, what do you think about cases like Andrea Yates and the Welches? Yates, she drowned her five kids in the bathtub because she believed it was the only way to save them from hell. The Welches... They basically mistreated medically their 10-month-old daughter, avoiding taking her to medical professionals because of religious beliefs. Both the Welches and Andrea Yates were involved in religious delusions and were both originally sentenced to life in prison. I know that Andrea Yates was able to appeal her case and change her charges and her sentence, and the mother of Mary Welch is planning to appeal her sentence. But how does it make you feel that people who potentially had no way of knowing right from wrong were still put in prison for life rather than originally being put in a private care facility? Yeah, I think that that's a really good question. And my personal opinion on it is that people who have delusions or any type of mental health like crisis, and that's why they do what they do, and that's, you know, kind of like follows along with the insanity plea and stuff like that. I think that there should be some type of facility for those type of people. It shouldn't be to prison for them because, they, like you said, they don't know right from wrong. Well, yeah, and something that 
like just to play off what you said, they attempted to use the insanity case for Andrea Yates originally, and when they went and appealed the case, they did use the insanity case and it went through, or the insanity plea and it went through. She ended up in a care facility, and now she gets the opportunity for release each year, and she declines it. So she knows that this is where she needs to be mm -hmm. because she doesn't know herself enough to know the difference between right and wrong based off of what she was taught religiously. And so I don't want to get into religion, but I just think that using that against somebody in the court of law shouldn't be allowed because we aren't supposed to use religion and law together anyway. They're not supposed to have so anything true. to do with each other. So I just think it's ridiculous in the first place. But yeah, I just wanted to see what you thought about that. It was a very interesting thing for me to think about when I watched the Welch case the other day on YouTube. So just wanted to see what somebody else thought. So let's go ahead and move on to the quote of the week. All right, this week's quote of the week says, I actually, after I finished um, typing up this script, I was asking my dad if he had any quotes that would just pop off the top of his head. He asked me what the episode was about, and so I told him, and he said his quote was going to be from himself. <laughs> it says, the problem with the prison system is that nobody's afraid to go back. And I figured that would be an interesting way to end this conversation because in my mind it kind of draws right back to the quote that I gave at the beginning that says, our practices of punishment are too interconnected with our goal of rehabilitation. In my mind, they're not, they're, they're almost complete opposites, but at the same time, they kind of complement each other because the issue that nobody's afraid to go back to prison is that you go to prison and you're punished, you're punished, you're punished, you get out and you do the same thing, you just go back to prison. There's no major issue and these people understand that being in prison sometimes is easier than ending up on the streets or being a drug addict in general, you know? So I think that those quotes were very interesting both to give in this episode and I hope you guys enjoyed those. I'm going to try to link some resources in the description like I always do, but I'm going to try to find some to also add that are related to this episode. Also check out the link in the description to find me outside of wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for listening and all your support, and I will talk to you all next time. Bye!